0: Our days are often filled with the physical tasks that crowd our to-do lists. We live in a physical world with physical demands, physical objectives, and physical relationships. And if we're not careful, we'll be tempted to forget that over and above the physical world of the here and now is a supernatural realm filled with its own battles and initiatives, often unseen and unheeded by a physical world oblivious to their presence. In Daniel chapter 10, the veil is peeled back for us as we are given insight into a supernatural war raging through the kingdoms of men. We'll consider them together on today's podcast in Daniel chapter 10. We're looking at verses 2 through 6 today. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full months. I didn't eat Any rich food, no meat or wine entered my mouth, and I didn't put any oil on my body until the three weeks were over. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Daniel 10 recounts for us another puzzling vision from the prophet. The chapter requires a little bit of historical background to put together what is going on. We learn that Daniel receives this vision. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, this date would be about 535 BC, making him close to 90 years old at this point. The message Daniel receives in this vision is about a great conflict, one of celestial proportions. It is an unseen war between angelic forces regarding human events about which Daniel is praying. We learn that Daniel had been mourning for three weeks. He is once again in some type of fast. No rich food, meat, or wine. He also hasn't used any oil. The Middle Easterners used this oil to keep the skin from getting dry due to the desert winds. The historical background of these events is a crucial detail to understand because it speaks to Daniel's state of mind and his mourning. By the third year of Cyrus' reign, the king has already made the call for the Jews to return to their homeland. Remember, according to Isaiah's prophecy, both in Isaiah 40 and in Isaiah 45, God would raise up Cyrus as his servant who would send the Jewish exiles back to their homeland as an end to God's punishment for their sin. Cyrus was very much Upon in the hand of God as he returned the people back to their land. Now, as we learned in Daniel 8 and 9, this was a probationary return of sorts that partly granted a reprieve because Daniel interceded for his people. You'll remember that God would have poured out the curses mentioned in Deuteronomy 28 for 2,300 years, but instead, God heard the prophet's prayers namely for his fame and his name to be vindicated among the nations, and he used that as the grounds for Israel's deliverance from bondage. Daniel surmised, what would it look like if your people lived in bondage for 2,300 years and your name was besmirched for that long around the world? And so God reduced the punishment that he was going to bring upon them, and instead allowed them to return on sort of a probationary basis. This was all in keeping with Jeremiah's prayer and prophecy in Jeremiah 25. Now, according to that prophecy, God granted his request and allowed the people to return to the land. It was to be as much a return to God as it was to the land that God had given them. God was restoring them according to his divine purposes. God has revealed these purposes through this entire book. God would use a parade of human kingdoms to restore his people and then usher in the Savior's advent. We've seen it all the way through the book. He would atone for their sins in coming, the Savior that is, through his death on the cross and establish righteousness forever in a perfectly executed timeline of events. These events occurred with precision and forethought through the majestic power of God, who would set up kings and tear them down following his own designs. This theme was present from the beginning, but God had fully revealed it to Daniel here at the end of chapter 9. Now, this reprieve from judgment through the grace offered to God's people was not because of their goodness. It was because of God's character and his zeal for his fame in the world. If you pay attention to the way that Daniel prayed, he uses this as his basis for this prayer of intercession for his people. Now, remember, God's dealing with Israel would testify to the nations of who he was. So how God interacted with them was a testimony of who God was to the world. God declared that he was faithful to his covenant promise in his judgment of these people for their sin. It's exactly what he said he would do. And now in their return to the land, God expresses his grace and mercy to them amid that judgment. It's the perfect tension between God's justice and his grace, a tension that we will see in its fullness in the cross in the days ahead. Now, back to Daniel's vision and the historical setting. As God's people begin to return to the land, we learn that they encounter settlers who had remained there. These people were part Jewish, part foreigners, known as Samaritans. And at first, these people tried to participate in the Jewish construction of the temple. But when their attempts to participate were rebuffed and their motives rightly questioned, The Samaritans get upset, and they begin to cause trouble for God's people who are trying to rebuild the temple and the city. Now, we'll learn more of these troublemakers in the book of Nehemiah, but for now, these people so troubled the construction of the temple that it eventually stopped. Ezra chapter 4 records these events. We read in verses 4 and 5 that the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them, to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. Now, if you're Daniel and you are second or third in the command in the empire, you're likely privy to most all of these details. Daniel saw all of this happening. You have the ear of King Cyrus, the man that you know, according to Isaiah's prophecy, God has appointed for this purpose to send your people back, which is what you've been praying for for years now. You've watched the inadequate response of the Jews in returning to the land. Perhaps you would have expected a more significant response at the thought of returning. And you also know the act of sending these people back is a God-ordained reprieve from judgment. And you understand that this is an act of God's probationary grace on his people despite their rebellion. And you know that hanging in the balance if this work does not go forward is the judgment of God through the curses of Deuteronomy 28 that God has already warned that he's going to pour out on his people. You're likely aware of the discouragement of the people back in Jerusalem. And you're also aware of the bribery going on by the Samaritans trying to frustrate the work in the courts of Cyrus. Now, all of this would have driven a man of Daniel's character to his knees in desperate prayer. Now, remember, this is a man that prayed in the face of certain death at the mouth of lions about the same time. So Daniel's accustomed to getting his prayers answered. His grief signals his doubt about whether or not his people will even get to carry out God's plan. He sees all of God's grace and mercy poured out in these providential events and sees them all in jeopardy. He realizes that the miraculous events that transpired, bringing about their return and the temple's reconstruction, all the things that he had prayed for for 70 years, all of it hangs in the balance, And all of this sends Daniel to desperate prayer for God to accomplish his will in those days. And now in the wake of all this backstory, Daniel has this vision. In the dream, Daniel sees a man dressed in linen, with a belt of gold around his waist. His body was like beryl and his face shone like lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet were like bronze. The sound of his voice sounded like a multitude. Now this description is very similar to the one that John saw in Revelation chapter one, verses 13 to 15. In that passage, this is Jesus himself, the son of man. And there's no reason to believe that Daniel does not see the same. One can imagine just how incredible this sight must have been. God told Daniel that the Messiah was coming. He knew that he would come. And now in this vision, here he is in front of him in a pre-incarnate vision. And this vision wrecks Daniel. Like so many before, he feels as if he will die in the very presence of the Holy One of Israel. Even more powerful, though, is what God says to Daniel. Verse 12 says that from the day that Daniel began to pray, from the very first day, when Daniel began to humble himself before God in prayer, God heard his prayers. And at this point, we're talking about at least 15 years of consistent praying, asking God, begging God to understand the things that he was seeing. And according to the text, for at least 15 years, the Son of Man had presumably been at war with someone named the Prince of Persia. Now this prince was undoubtedly some fallen angel who exercised authority and influence over the physical kingdom of Persia. It likely could have been the very demonic influence that would have influenced the bribery happening at that very moment within the kingdom. But we then learn that the Son of Man will then battle the king of Greece, the next world power. It seems to me that given the revelation of God's plan to Daniel in chapter 9, that the supernatural forces of darkness are now working overtime to subvert God's plan revealed in the book of Daniel. You see, up until this point, God had not revealed his plan. In its fullness and its, in its entirety. But then, when God revealed it to Daniel, the forces of darkness began to work overtime to subvert the work that God had ordered. Now, this battle had raged with such ferocity that reinforcements had to be called in just to get to Daniel. Now, the one before Daniel here is so awesome that Daniel has to be strengthened, supernaturally strengthened, even to speak. He is as a dead man in the presence of one that's so holy. Now, this is a, a strange vision to be sure, but there are several things worthy of our consideration here. First is that there are supernatural forces at work behind the human activity of our lives. Daniel's prayer, perhaps the bribery of the government officials, the discouragement of the people, they all point to a supernatural battle at work, behind the scenes and all of these physical events. There is an enemy that works to subvert the plans of God clearly outlined in the life of Daniel. And the same is true in our lives as well. When we encounter resistance to accomplishing the objectives of God, the stated objectives of God in the world, we need to recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not human beings that are coming against us, but against principalities and powers and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And we've got to remember that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We need to remind ourselves that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And though our enemy is real, he is a defeated foe. We also need to remember that our power does not defeat the enemy. The enemy is not conquered by our acumen, by our strength, by our wisdom or our ability. We defeat the enemy through dependence in God in prayer. 15 years of it to be exact in Daniel's case. I wonder what mighty work of God might be wrought in our lives if we dared to pray consistently with fervent commitment towards God's work in our lives. Because God will overcome the enemy, And he does hear our prayers. And if we pray that God would allow us to be a part of his stated objectives in the world, he will empower us to accomplish that work. And we also need to remember how wrecked Daniel was in the presence of one so mighty. So often our prayer lives are consumed with trivial things like the burdens of this life or the fear of our enemies, but we need to remember who it is to whom we are praying. We need a fresh vision of him, an image that comes through our consistent time in prayer. And when we do this, the insurmountable difficulties or the unseen enemies warring against God's purposes in our lives, no matter how big they are, they will seem small in light of the incredible glory of the Holy One of Israel in our presence. So Jesus, thank you that you fight our battles. Thank you that it is not up to us to accomplish your plans. But it is up to us to depend on your spirit and obey your leading. So Lord, give us the courage to do that. Guard us against the fear of the enemy and help us to see your glory. Help us rely on you and realize that though the forces of evil may war against you, you can, you have, and you will accomplish your plans. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today for the Read Your Bible podcast. For show notes to today's episode, please visit readyourbible.info. While you're there, you can listen to past episodes as well as access a host of additional resources designed to help you grow in your faith. It's all there for you at readyourbible.info. That's readyourbible.info. For more information about South Seminole Baptist Church, just go to southseminole.com. Join us again tomorrow as together we help you learn to read your Bible.